Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Childers. Today, we have a wonderful story of redemption for you. We're going to talk with Beckett Cook in just a moment. My guest today is Beckett Cook, and 10 years ago, he was a gay man living in Hollywood with an incredibly successful career, uh, successful vocationally and financially. He worked with stars and supermodels, vacationed with celebrities, and here a decade later, his life has changed dramatically, and he chronicles that story in his book, A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption, which is an incredible story indeed. And so, Beckett, I'm so thrilled to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Elisa. Well, like I mentioned, your story is fascinating. And I just want you to know that as a lifelong Christian, I was so deeply moved by how you describe your conversion. Uh, we were kind of chatting before we went on the air. I, I don't even remember a time when I wasn't aware of the presence of God or I didn't know the name Jesus. And so your passion and enthusiasm for the gospel just through the eyes of a, a newborn believer is so contagious. And I just found myself at times with tears in my eyes, not only just by how Jesus pursued you and saved you, but also by the incredibly penetrating insights you brought to the scriptures. And your book's kind of laid out that way. It's separated into two sections. Part one is mostly your story, where you came from, how Jesus saved you. And then in part two, you dive into scripture and deal with what you might call the more practical elements of living out a Christian life as it intersects with sexual brokenness, which is something that all of us deal with on one level or another. And so I want to kind of chat about both of those aspects of your book, but I really want the listeners today to get to know you through your story. So your book begins with this interesting encounter you had at a coffee shop in Los Angeles. And so give us some background about what your life was like just that day as you made your way to the coffee shop. What was a typical Saturday for you? And what kind of opinions did you have about God or about religion in general? And then and then tell us what happened when you saw this group of people at this table with physical Bibles out right in the middle of a coffee shop in, was it Silver Lake? Yes, in Silver Lake. Yeah, yeah. Let us know yeah. what happened. Yeah, so I, you know, at at ten years before ten years ago, I was living, as you said, as a gay man in Hollywood. I was a successful set designer, production designer in the fashion world, and uh, you know, I had a whole really fun group of friends who were all in uh, the business in, in Hollywood. They were producers, writers, directors, actors, and you know, some of them were gay, some were straight. And all of those people now kind of run Hollywood mm. and run this town. And a lot of my friends ended up, you know, over the years, since I moved to L.A. in the 90s, they ended up becoming movie stars and, you know, super famous directors and actors and producers. And um, and so my life was very much God was not a part of my life at all because uh, I knew I was gay and I knew that. God, I knew that Christianity, I knew the, the Christians understanding and the biblical understanding of homosexuality. I was aware of that because I was raised Catholic. Mm. And I mean, I knew what the Bible had to say about homosexuality. I wasn't, you know, um, unaware of that. And so I just knew that God was never an option for me. So, uh, so over time in LA, I got to the point where I was a practical atheist. Mm. Um, I wasn't even an agnostic anymore at that at 10 years ago. I was, I was really an atheist and 
really thought that the Bible was a, a myth, just like an, any other ancient myth. Um, my, all of my friends, we never mentioned God. We, we just all assumed that God didn't exist. And it, it, we didn't even have to say it. It just was assumed. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, you know, I was enjoying life. You know, I was, I was going to award shows and the Oscars, the Emmys, the Golden Globes and the after parties and the fashion weeks in New York and Paris and like having, you know, really interesting experiences. And, and I was, you know, I went through a series of, I think five boyfriends, serious, serious boyfriends in LA. And so that was kind of all of our, that was our, our kind of raison d'etre. It was like, it was, you know, success in our careers Mm. and finding true love and, and having these great experiences. And that, and that's kind of what life was all about for me. And, uh, so by the time I got to the coffee shop though, I was already wrestling with, is that all there is? Cause I, I had, I had lived that life for, I don't know, 10 plus years, mm. uh, and, and done everything, been everywhere, traveled the world, seen every, met everyone in Hollywood, had dinners at everyone's houses in Hollywood, like went to Prince's house, went to Prince's house one night and he performed a concert in his backyard. Like, yeah hung out with Ariana Huffington, um, just all kinds of things. And, but I started to really wonder, you know, I, it's the weight of kind of postmodern relativism started to really bear down on me. And I started to think, is there objective truth? Not everything can be subjective. Like there's gotta be some objective truth and I don't know what it is. And I don't even know how to begin to find out about it. Mm. So cut to, And then I had six months prior to the, to the coffee shop encounter, I had this night in Paris where I was at fashion week in Paris and, uh, in 2009, March of 2009. And I got, I had gone to a bunch of the shows and to the after parties and I was at one particular after party. And I just remember feeling just overwhelming emptiness. Mm -hmm. And even though like everyone from the fashion world was there and it was, you know, glamorous and fun and drinking champagne and dancing. And and I just felt like what, this isn't it. Like, this is not the answer. And I don't know what is, but this cannot sustain me for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't know what I'm going to do. And I was in a huge panic that night. I went back to my hotel and just was up all night, just in a panic. But then I got to, back to L.A., got busy with work, and kind of, you know, that kind of feeling left to me. And then that's, and then six months later, I was at a coffee shop in, in Silver Lake, which is kind of the sort of, you know, hipster part of L.A., although all of L.A. is hipster now. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so I was there with, you know, in my... I was there with my best friend who was gay and, you know, our typical Saturdays or weekends were we would get up and we would, you know, my best friend and I would go to brunch in Venice at this, we had this favorite restaurant in Venice and then we would, um, you know, go shopping in you know, West Hollywood or Beverly Hills at Barney's or something. And then, and then we would go, you know, hang out at this coffee place. And that was kind of our, our week. That was basically gay church. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> gay church is like brunch and shopping. So, yeah. um, that was kind of my rhythm uh, around that time. And, and so we were, we were at the coffee shop and, and we were chatting. And first we noticed first, first we noticed this man walking out of the we were on the patio outside and we noticed this man walking out of the 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 interior of the coffee shop and he was carrying a what looked like a commentary i mean i was i was aware enough to know what uh like a commentary was and so and it had the word Romans written on the spine of this big book. Mm. And I was like, whoa, that's weird. And I looked at my friend and he saw it too. And we were like, that's strange. And then he walked over to the table next to us and we looked over and they, it was a bunch of young people with Bibles on the table. Mm. And that was a shocking sight because I had never seen a Bible in public in LA. Yeah. And so um, my friend and I were just like, what is going on? And, and, the, and so the man with the Romans 
book was, you know, chatted with them, said hi, and they obviously all knew each other and greeted each other. And he left. And then um, my friend was like, you know, ask them what they're doing. Oh, because at one point they bowed their heads and started praying, and which was even weirder. So right. we're like, are they going to cult? Are they going to, you know, Jonestown? Yeah. Right, right. Um, so, so we we were just kind of fascinated by them. And I I was secretly kind of interested because because of that night in Paris six months before. Mm-hmm. I was sort of interested in hearing something else, mm-hmm. uh, another narrative in this world. And so I finally I turned to them and I said, you know, it's kind of a Christian's fantasy, like right. hey, are you guys Christian? <laughs> like what's the gospel? Yeah. Um, Is that a Bible you're reading? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, have, by the way, having a Bible with you is always a good prop because it brings up all sorts of questions, um, yeah. or people can ask you. So I, you know, I just was, I just said, you know, what do you, are you guys Christians? What's the deal? Um, and they said, yeah, we are. And, and I, and I, so we kind of got in the, we got into this conversation and, and I, you know, I was, I asked them, you know, what, what do you believe? Cause I grew up Catholic I went to Jesuit schools my whole life, I, I, but I don't really like, tell me what you believe. And because they, they told me that they were evangelical Christians. And, and I said, well, what are the tenets of your faith? And, and they basically laid it out for me. They, they kind of shared the gospel. I think they shared the gospel with me to some extent. I can't remember exactly how they framed it, but, and we, we got into this conversation for like, and we were talked for a like an hour or so. It was um, an inter- interesting conversation. And my best friend was kind of hanging back behind me and he didn't really engage. I was doing all the talking. Mm-hmm. And and then, of course, I get to the question, the $64,000 question. And I said, well, what is your church in Hollywood called Reality LA? What do they believe about homosexuality? And they said, well, we believe it's a sin. And I, in that moment, I kind of had this um, moment of, okay, this is flash. It was like a flash moment because a year prior to that or 10 years prior to that five years, I would have just stormed off and been like, you guys need, you know, therapy. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, cause you actually mentioned reading, uh, CS Lewis's mere Christianity several years before, and you tossed it for that very reason, because CS Lewis basically called homosexuality a sin. And you were like, I'm done with this, but there was, there was something different about this meeting. Wasn't there? Yeah, I was in my. I was living in Benedict Canyon, up in the hills, and I just I remember reading C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and I just, I just like taught through it across the room, and it happened to land in the trash can, which was funny. But um, <laughs> so they told me that, and I just was like, in that moment, I I was just kind of thought to myself in a split second, okay, what? There's this very slim chance that God exists. And if God exists, what if homosexuality is wrong? And if homosexuality is wrong, what if I've built my entire life on a false foundation and I don't know it? <sighs> and so that kind of flashed in my mind. And then, and then they invited me to church the following Sunday. And I said, well, just, you know, I don't know if I'll, I'll go, just give me the address and, and we'll see what happens. And so I, I kind of had a whole week to think about whether I was going to go to church the next Sunday or not. Yeah. And in your book, you wrote, as you were going through that wrestling match of trying to decide whether or not you would actually go through with attending the church or visiting, you wrote, I, of course, didn't want any of my progressive, liberal, sophisticated friends knowing I was considering such an act of blasphemy. That really stood out to me. Why did you consider attending a Christian church service an act of blasphemy? Well, because I was living within this kind of secular humanist worldview and where God didn't exist. And and even the idea of acknowledging God might exist and that homosexuality might be a sin was would would brand me as a heretic. Yes. I would be a heretic amongst my friends. I mean, uh, and I am now. Uh, but yeah. uh, so. Yeah, it was just, it was kind of like, if anyone knew that I was even um, considering 
joining kind of the, the club of the quote unquote enemy, like because Christians in our mind were, or any religious people really, but definitely like evangelical Christians were considered like the enemy to us because, um, you know, we just thought they were like, they were in the dark ages. Mm. They were living in the dark ages and we were more enlightened. And so it was like this, yeah, I didn't yeah. want to, anyone to find out that I was try, I was stepping my foot into the dark ages, quote yeah. unquote. Yeah, so that's by. that's fascinating, and I I was so impacted by your description of your conversion. So so you know, spoiler alert: you end up going, you end up at the church <laughs> service that morning, and um, so walk us through. What ha- like what what did it feel like for you as a gay man living in Hollywood with all this success? to walk into an evangelical church on a Sunday morning and then just, just walk us through that morning because it's, it's such a powerful story. So, yeah, I, I, uh, didn't really know what to expect because I had never been to an evangelical church and it met, this church met in a public high school auditorium on Sunset Boulevard. And I was used to, you know, high church, like stained glass windows and bells and whistles and smoke and, mm. uh, and robes with vestments and stuff. And so I, I was, uh, when I walked into this auditorium, it was just like a very basic auditorium. And I was kind of, it was refreshing to me because I just felt like, Oh, like this is not, you know, it's not about the building. It's about, I don't know. It just was interesting to me that it was so just basic. And so, I walked in and I heard Christian, the worship band was playing Christian music. And I kind of cringed at first because I, I sort of, no, I didn't forget that Christian music existed. I just hadn't heard it in like decades. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And so it kind of was like kryptonite or something. And um, But then I just, and then I was like, oh no, this is actually nice. I like it. And so I... I walked to the front, near the front, and I sat in the fourth row. I remember the row I sat in. And I sat by myself. I don't know where – the people who invited me, uh, I didn't see them. I don't, I don't know where they were. But I just sat by myself, and then the pastor came out, and he was preaching on Romans. And he was uh, in a series – he was in a two-year series on Romans. And um, – and he was on Romans seven when I when he was preaching that day, and I just remember as he started preaching and getting into the sermon, I just remember being absolutely riveted to what he was saying, mm-hmm. and I and and then things in my mind and my heart were starting to re- everything he was saying was resonating as true to me in my mind and my heart, and I didn't know why, and I was just like, whoa, like this is the gospel. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know, I thought this was, I, I thought religion was something else. Like, I, what, this is amazing. This is good news. Mm. And the sermon was an hour long and I didn't want him to stop preaching. I just wanted him to keep going because I was so fascinated by the sermon and, mm. and so, um, and, you know, just in, enthralled by it. And so he eventually ends the sermon and he he invited people before he left the stage. He said, you know, there's people on the prayer ministry, on the sides of the church, if you need prayer for anything. And then there's going to be another 30 minutes of worship time. So he left the stage. I ended up walking over to the side of the church and going up to, I mean, it was kind of a weird moment because I didn't, I was very uncomfortable doing this, but I ended up walking over and asking a guy on the side to pray for him. I said, Hey, I'm, I'm, here and I don't know what I believe. Again, a Christian's fantasy come true. And so <laughs> this guy laid hands on me and he prayed for me and he just, I, it just seemed like a really powerful prayer and really um, loving and caring. And I just remember thinking like, why does this random straight dude love me so much? Oh, yeah. And because this prayer was so loving. And so I, and then I walked back to my seat and, and again, there was now another 25 minutes of worship music playing. And so I sat down, every, everyone else was standing and worshiping and singing. And I sat down because I was kind of overwhelmed by all everything going on. And then a couple of minutes later, the Holy Spirit just 
flooded my mind, my body, my soul, my spirit. Mm -hmm. And, and it was like my, the scales just fell from my eyes and it was, and I just started sobbing and it was like, you know, Isaiah in the temple, when he sees the holiness of God, he comes undone. And I just fell apart and I saw God, I mean, God revealed himself to me in that moment. And he's like, I'm God. Jesus is my son. Heaven's real. Hell's real. The Bible's true. Welcome to my kingdom. And I just was like bawling. And I, it was like the curtains had parted and I could finally see the the meaning of life for the first time in my life. The the truth. I finally realized, I finally knew that there was an objective truth and, and it was Jesus. And so I, I was just crying and crying. It was the most it was like a road to Damascus kind of moment. It was, it was the most amazing experience I've ever had in my life. And, um, and then it happened again the same day I came home after the service and I got into bed to take a nap because I was just so kind of freaked out by everything. And God, it was kind of like Moses when he's in the cleft of the rock and God passes by with his glory. Yeah. And I was in my bed and, and I just felt this overwhelming presence of God. And, and I started bawling again and I jumped up out of my bed and in the middle of my bedroom, I said, God, you have my whole life. It's yours. I'm done. Like I am done. And, and that was September 20th, 2009. Wow. Well, that, that, uh, particular experience, that second dose, you know, when you we were in your, in your bed and you said you felt like gallons of love were being poured into you. And I got to be honest, like as a lifelong Christian, that just, it's like hard to describe in words how that impacted me. Just gallons of love being poured into you. It, it not only made me jealous, <laughs> like I want the gallons of love, <laughs> but it also just reinvigorated my what I know is true, which is that God is still saving people, that the Holy Spirit is still moving, that, that this is all still happening, even in Hollywood. And, you know, it, it just, yeah. yeah, it's just really powerful. And I, I just want to encourage anyone listening, get the book because you'll learn so much more about Beckett's story than he's able to, to lay out in just this 45 minute podcast or so. But just, that particular section of you describing from the time the man prayed for you to you surrendering your life uh, to Jesus. And I love what you write um, about when God revealed himself to you, he was revealing his holiness. And so you you write this, God revealed his holiness to me and I saw the utter, de- utter, utter depth of my sin in light of his holiness. And I felt this deep mix of sorrow and incredible joy, sorrow over my sin and joy over meeting Jesus Christ and gratefulness for everything that meant. And that is just such a beautiful portrayal of the gospel of what Jesus does when he saves someone. And um, man, it's just, that is such a beautiful story. We're talking with Beckett Cook about his book, A Change of Affection, and we'll jump right back into that conversation in just a moment. But I want to take a minute and tell you about today's sponsor, which is Impact 360, a wonderful organization that exists to help equip young people, young Christian people to live out their Christian worldview in a culture that is honestly just really hostile to the things that Christians believe. And so Impact 360 equips through online training, through summer experiences. You can get equipped by going to the Gen Z Lab at impact360.org. But if you know a young person that wants to take some time before they go to college to participate in Impact 360's Gap Year Fellows Program, it is phenomenal. I was just there uh, kind of before all this COVID-19 stuff hit to speak to the fellows, and it is wonderful. It's a nine-month program that will equip them in just tremendous ways to be lights in a dark world. You can go to impact360.org to apply. Use my name, Alisa, as a promo code to, to waive your tuition. Check it out at impact360.org. You're born again now. You're, you've given your life to Jesus. And then the very next section in your book is, but what about dating guys? And so talk about what, what did this conversion experience mean for your dating life? Well, it meant, it meant that it was over. Yeah. I, so I knew, I knew immediately, especially in, that, in the bedroom when I had that second dose of the gallons of love, 
um, scene, I, you know, I knew immediately that homosexuality, homosexual behavior was sinful. I knew it was wrong. I knew it was no longer a part of who I was. I knew it was not my identity, even though for 20 years I had marched in gay pride parades and marriage rallies and, you know, all these things for, for every year, you know, I would Mm. go to gay pride in New York, LA and San Francisco. And, um, and I knew that it was my old, I knew that it was not who I was anymore. And I, but, and I knew that dating guys were no longer a part of my future, but I didn't care because I had just met Jesus. And I was like, good riddance to that old life. Mm. I'm going to go with this guy. Like Jesus is amazing. And I, uh, and you know, that was 10 years ago and I still feel the exact same way. Like there's no, there's no, I, I don't miss that life. I don't, want to go back to that life. I don't want, I don't want to go back to Egypt at all. Yeah. Like I have no desire to do that. And I, I don't, uh, and I still am just in awe every day I wake up. I'm in awe that I'm in God's kingdom and that I have a relationship with Jesus. Like I'm just in shock yeah. every day. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that every time that you had tried to read the Bible before this experience, the words just seemed dead on the page. But after your conversion, you you say that the Bible came alive to you. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just kind of part of like just regeneration. You know, when when the Holy Spirit regenerates you and you you know the truth, uh, it's the Bible. It's almost like the Bible's in 3d or something. Mm. And you can, and it just every, to me, it was like, I, I would just, I remember reading, I read the Bible just voraciously. I couldn't stop reading it. And I, I remember just reading, you know, just even old Testament books and, and being so just like, Whoa, like this is absolutely true. I can't believe that's true. And and it felt like the Bible felt like this symphony and that um, that was like this perfect symphony and that if one word were taken out or added, it would be it would make it a false. Mm. It would be a false note. And but to me, it just felt like the Bible was this beautiful symphony. And whereas before, you know, it just growing, I, I hadn't read the Bible since high school In high school. We in, in my at Jesuit in Dallas, we um I don't think we ever really read the Bible <laughs> in, in school. We always read like Thomas Aquinas or some, some other theological person, yeah, yeah. You know, figure. And we never really read the Bible, but um, I don't know. I just, I just remember just in high school reading the Bible once in a while and, and it just feeling like whatever, this does, this doesn't apply to me. I, yeah. This doesn't make any sense. I don't care about it. So when, after I got saved, it was just like everything changed. And the Bible was like this amazing, beautiful revelation from yeah. God. And it's, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Well, since your conversion, uh, you've had some kind of cool ministry opportunities among your friends, but there's also been a cost for you. So what has this meant for your career? What has it meant for, uh, your, you know, your livelihood, this, this conversion experience? Well, after, right after I got saved, I, I was, uh, working, you know, I immediately was working on photo shoots, um, fashion shoots with like, you know, actresses and celebrities and all these people are working at Paris Hilton's house and, you know, doing a shoot with her at her house or other, just other people, many, many other people. And, and I just remember, for years. I mean, I couldn't keep my mouth shut. I just would tell everyone on the set about Jesus and I would tell them about my conversion and and tell them my story. And, and I didn't really care. I didn't care about the consequences. And, um, and it was weird because I thought that I was going to kind of stop getting jobs, but I kept getting more and more and more jobs, Mm. um, until the book came out. And when the book came out six, I think it was six months ago, uh, seven months ago when the book came out, that was kind of like the red line in the sand. That was when it was untenable for me. And my, so my agency who represented me for production design, they dropped me three weeks after my book came out. And, and so it really obviously impacted my career. Basically I lost, I'm persona non grata in in Hollywood now because of the book. And, and so it really, you know, it basically 
destroyed my career, which was fine because I knew that God, cause I had gone to, I, during this time I, in 2014 to 2017, I went to seminary at Talbot school of theology at Biola yeah. university. And I, I knew that God was kind of leading me into a different vocation and, and, into like itinerant ministry and speaking on this issue at churches and universities and at conferences. So I kind of knew that was coming. Um, and I, you know, I lost, I lost a lot of friends, uh, a couple of very, very close friends, especially when the book, it was really like the book coming out was a a big deal because Mm -hmm. that's when, that's when like friends who I still kind of had a relationship with, that's when it was like, okay, no, this, you've gone too far. Like it was okay for you to talk about this, you know, with us, but like to, for you to write a book about this is like, you've gone way too far. Yeah. So I lost a, a bunch of friends. Uh, and, but also I gained a bunch of friends in the, you know, in my church and the Christian world. Yeah. So there was, you know, I gained way more friends than I lost, but it was, it was pretty painful. I mean, th- there were some f- very close friends who were, I mean, absolutely, especially when the book came out, absolutely just vicious towards me. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really painful. Um, but, um, but I've gotten over that now and, and it's, uh, but it's, yeah, so it was kind of a mix of, of, of things, but I, uh, but again, I have now like this whole new community of friends who are amazing. And so, you know, that's just what happens. Well, and those of us who were so blessed to be able to read your book are thankful that you uh, that you did that and that you were willing to partake in the sufferings of Christ and be hated as he was hated, as he promised all of us. If we truly follow him, you know, at some point or another in our lives, we'll experience something like that. Um, so amazing story. And what I love about your book, too, is that the second half, you dive into so much scripture. And it, it may actually surprise some people that you hardly even mention what some people call the clobber passages, the, the, the six passages in scripture that address homosexuality specifically. Uh, and you gave just a really compelling explanation of the rich young ruler. And you, you actually, you, you reference several scriptures and dive really deep on them. So for anyone listening, get the book, don't miss those because you you will be so blessed to hear some of these uh, explanations and some of these insights that Beckett brings to these scriptures. But let's just focus in on one, and that's the story of the rich young ruler. Can can you summarize your thoughts on that passage, and and what could the story of the rich young ruler possibly have to do with something like homosexuality? Yeah, well, in in, in the Gospels, um, there was the story of the account of the rich young man or the rich young ruler, and. And um, just to remind people of what what happens, he he comes. Uh, I'm reading. I mean, I'm referencing out of Mark, but he he comes up to Jesus and kneels before him, and he says, "Good teacher, what what must I do to inherit eternal life?" And then Jesus kind of has this exchange with him and sort of challenges him. And <clears throat> excuse me, and Jesus says, you know, well, you know, the commandments and Jesus is kind of like almost playing with him in a way, but he's like, you know, the commandments, um, you know, and, and Jesus lists the, the kind of second table of the commandments, like the, the horizontal commandments as it were. Mm-hmm. And, and the rich young man says, well, I've, you know, I've kept the commandments. I've kept all of these since my youth. Um, you know, as he's perfectly kept the commandments since his youth and, Jesus looked at him and loved him, it says in Mark, and he said, but you lack one thing. And Jesus kind of knew, he knew what this, this man's functioning idol was in his life. And it was his, his money, his possessions. And so Jesus says, you lack one, one thing, go sell all of your possessions and come follow me. And the man turns away and he's, He's turns away, has to say, he's, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Mm. And to me, that's just, just like a perfect parallel to people in the LGBT community coming to Christ. It's like Jesus is saying, come follow me. And, but, you know, 
go, you know, give up, give up this, this identity that give up this false identity in your life and come follow me. And, and people in the LGBT community are like, mm, no. And so that's kind of like the deal breaker for the, L- I, and I had a friend, I had a friend who, uh, he's, you know, he's married to a man and he owns a very high end design furniture kind of store in West Hollywood. And, uh, he came to church with me. I, he, it was weird. Like he, he would like things on my, on Facebook that I posted about, you know, I would post like verses from the Bible and he would like them. And I was like, wow, that's weird. So I reached out to him and I invited him to church and he ended up coming. And, and then, and then he didn't come back after the first time. And, and, and so I ran into him, uh, some like months later, I ran into him at his store and I just, you know, I was like, so what happened? Like, why aren't you coming to church? And, and he told, basically he said, you know, be, because of the gay thing, the the gay issue. And I, and I just was like, uh, I won't use his real name. I'll just say Joe. Mm-hmm. I just said, Joe, like, this is, it was like the rich young ruler. It's like, Joe, like you're walking away from Jesus because of this one issue. Like, and I know it's a powerful issue and I know you're married to a man and, and you're married to a very successful, you know, TV writer. And, uh, like that's a big deal to give up, but the eternity is a bigger deal and Mm -hmm. eternities are really long time. Um, and so that to me, that this is a great illustration of like, what, what's the deal breaker in your life to following Christ? Is it yeah. being gay? Is it being rich? Is it being whatever it is? It's like, but to me, this really mirrors kind of the, the gay issue and, and what prevents people from following Christ. Yeah. And I, and it's super convicting even for people where that's maybe that's not their specific sin struggle, but we all have those idols in our life. We all have those things that, uh, that we are holding on with clenched fists and that we have to be willing to lay down and in order to pick up our cross. And I, I found that section just really insightful and really convicting. I think it would be convicting for anyone who, who reads it. And, uh, and again, you know, you dive into so much more and it's, it's so rich. Um, but I want to ask you a couple of questions because one thing I encounter a lot when the question gets asked, like, you know, you talk about asking the, the, the person in the coffee shop, well, what does your church think about homosexuality? I often find that there are a lot of categories that get confused within that question. And it becomes uh-huh. difficult to answer because, you know, on, on one hand, you want the person to know that they are a person made in the image of God and that God loves them, that you love them. Um, but, but sometimes I think people, especially in our culture, have made that into an actual identity. And so it's very uh-huh. difficult even to help uh, somebody understand how to, how to kind of separate those things. And so you mentioned that you get asked some, you know, some frequently asked questions. And I want to pick a couple of those because I think it might help those who are listening, even in our own thinking, but even as we, as we talk to other people. And so the first question I'm going to ask you, you've, I mean, we all know where you're coming from on this, obviously, from the things that you've said thus far, but just specifically help us uh, just in talking with other people that we're trying to communicate with. And even for our own thinking, how, how would you answer the question, can you be gay and Christian? Yeah, that's a big question. And, you know, I talk about this in the book, how, how, you know, being gay or or, um, homosexuality has in our culture has become such an identity. So there's gay pride parades, but there's not greed pride parades or tax collector pride parades. (laughs) Um, um, and so it's so tied to, and of course I felt the same way for 20 years. I, it was my identity th- through and through. That was who I was. And there was no, I, I didn't think there was any changing it. And I remember being, you know, offended by my family who, who kind of had the, that idea of like, hate the sin, love the sinner. And I, and I just always felt like they, and my family were, they, they were so loving to me and so lovely to me, but mm-hmm. But I, I just felt really offended by that because I just thought I, I'm not two pe- like I'm that's I'm not two people. You can't hate part of me and love part of me. Like mm-hmm. this is who I am. So you, that's one one aspect. But in terms of can you be gay and Christian? 
Um, the short answer is no. I mean, so when you when you mean when you use the word gay, if you're talking about homosexual behavior, not orientation, but homosexual behavior, you there's only a couple of options. You're either if you're engaging in homosexual behavior and you're calling yourself a Christian, you're either in a backslidden state or you're just completely deceived by yourself or the enemy. Uh, or I think what's happening a lot now because um, pastors, so a lot of pastors are uh, terrified of even addressing this issue anymore and in, in from the pulpit. Mm. So I think especially in, I don't know in other places, but in LA, it just seems like pastors don't really want to talk about this. And so, and they haven't for for several years or many years. And so I think that there's a lot of people, even in my church, there's probably a lot of, I know there is actually, there's a lot of people who, you know, would call themselves Christians, but are in same sex relationships and don't even know that it's wrong because mm. no one has said, no one's saying a word about it. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so that's really important. That's, uh, that's, you know, part of why, you know, I, I do the ministry I do is to really help the church understand this issue biblically, theologically, culturally, and, you know, from someone who's been on both sides. But, but yeah, I think that, um, the idea of being a gay Christian is like a square circle. And I, I would never, I know some people are celibate and, and have same sex attraction orientation mm-hmm. who call themselves gay Christians just because it's kind of shorthand for just saying, you know, that's, that's kind of my struggle, Mm -hmm. but I, I would never call myself a gay Christian because I would never want to identify with a sin. I I would, I like, I wouldn't call myself a gossiping Christian or, uh, you know, uh, or greedy Christian. Like I just, I call myself just a Christian. And when people ask me what, you know, what I am, I just say, I am a Christian. I don't say like, I'm a gay Christian or I'm a Christian who's, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so I think that to keep speaking that word over yourself is, is dangerous Mm. and, uh, and it can eventually just sort of, it kind of almost, uh, reinforces that identity over and over again. If you're, if you're calling yourself a gay Christian and you're celibate, um, I think that just reinforces your identity as in the, in the, in the sinful aspect of being, of, of, of homosexuality. You're just reinforcing that identity. Yeah. And your your book is called A Change of Affection. And so uh, you mentioned that people often ask you, now that you're a Christian, are you straight? Have, has your fe- your same-sex attraction changed? What, what does that mean, a change of affection? Well, a change of affection, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, it uh, means a lot. But, I mean, in terms of that question, um, I still... There are vestiges of same-sex attraction still, you know, that I still struggle with. Mm-hmm. But I have to say that it's been – so before I was a Christian, say, you know, homosexuality, uh, sexuality just dominated my thought life. That's – I mean, I thought about it all the time. You know, I, it was just like such a part of my life. And now it's very, very – I rarely think about it. Mm. Um of course, Satan's listening. He's like, Oh really? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I rarely think about it. And, um, and it's not something that dom. it doesn't dominate my life, but, but I, but to be clear, like I don't, I'm not, let's quote unquote straight now. I'm not attracted to women, but I'm, uh, you know, as Paul was single, Jesus was single. Um, and, and I'm happy to be single and celibate for the rest of my life. And I don't, I know, I don't feel, cheated by, I don't feel like I'm missing out on something or that I'm being cheated out of something or that life's unfair. I just feel like, you know, the luckiest guy in the world because I have this relationship with the king of the universe. And so I, uh, yeah, I don't, um, I don't feel like I'm ever missing out. And I, and, and again, I don't, I don't ever long to go back to that life. So, um, so I don't, it's, you know, there, there is a tiny bit of that, that's still kind of operating mm-hmm. in my, in me, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, control me at all. Yeah. Well, we're, we're coming up on the end of our time together. Uh, I want to cover a couple of things though, practical things for people who are listening. There are 
many Christian parents who might be listening who have just had a child come out of the closet, or maybe they they know that their child struggles with their sexual identity. So what advice would you give to Christian parents uh, who might be in that type of a situation who, uh, or, or Christian parents who mm, that might happen at some point? What would you advise them to do as Christian parents uh, for their kids? Yeah, I mean, I go through this uh, kind of the, all the different iterations in my book of this, uh, the different aspects of it, but I'll just kind of give a general overview of it. I mean, I think that parents, when when kids come out to their parents, uh, either as they struggle with same-sex attraction or they just come out as gay, um, it's a shock to the parents. But the child has had a lot of time to process that, those feelings for years. So when I came out to my parents, I had, you know, I had had years to process all the, the all my feelings and what I was going through before I came out to them. And so by the time I came out to them, um, you know, kids kind of expect their parents to jump on board immediately and be totally fine with everything. Yeah. So I think kids need to give their parents grace and let them kind of mourn and, and process what they're telling them. And, and parents need to give their children grace too. And just instead of reacting in a crazy way and kicking them out of the house or taking away their phone, like, just loving them through. I mean, it's first of all, taking time to really grieve and, and then, and then loving your child through that, the whole process of, of this. And, um, I, I kind of relate this to, you know, the, the prodigal son. It's like, you know, that when he asked for his inheritance, his father just gave it to him and let him go. And he didn't ground him. He didn't take away his phone. He didn't do anything. He just let him go and, and he let him do his thing. Yeah. Because he really that that's the, that younger son really needed to understand what grace was, and so um, yeah, I just think that the and 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 my my parents were were really lovely about it when I when they found out that I was gay they were just they were you know a little upset but they and they they believed it was a sin and they were Christians and mm-hmm. they but they were super loving through it and super. And for years, for all the years that I was living that life and when I had boyfriends, they were still so loving to me and, and, and they kind of just, I mean, I think they just knew that it's really up to God you know, it's up to the Holy Spirit to really convict me of that. And it wasn't their job to kind of quote Bible verses to me or, or like, you know, beat me over the head with the Bible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they just let it kind of play out, you know, and they prayed for me for, they prayed and prayed and prayed and my, all my family prayed for me for years yeah. and God answered their prayer. Just finally, as we close out here, I have no doubt that there are probably some people listening, at least someone listening, who might be struggling with their own sexual identity. Maybe they've never even told anyone. Maybe they're in a battle. Maybe they're about to give up. Um, What would you want to say to anyone listening who might be struggling just in, in their own hearts? Well, first of all, I would just say that, um, that, you know, I get, I under, I get it. And I understand that, um, that struggle. And I also, I would say that, you know, look, it's like he, the book of Hebrews is always looking to the heavenly country, looking to, to the promises of God. This life is such a vapor. It's so short. It lasts two seconds long and then you have eternity. And it's like, what, what do you want to your life to be about? Do you want your life to be about kind of, you know, trying to figure out how much you can sin or how little you can sin or whatever, or, or do you just want to be all in for the gospel, all in for Jesus? It's like Paul, I think of Paul, (laughs) Paul's a great example of this. It's just like, he didn't, he didn't care that he was stoned and beaten and, and, and jailed and shipwrecked. And all he cared about was just running around the Mediterranean and spreading the gospel and planting churches. He didn't, he, he wasn't like self, I, I don't want to use this word in a, in a harsh way, but he wasn't self-pitying. He just, mm. he was all about the gospel and the kingdom. And, and I think that that's what we have to focus on. And, and I know that 
the struggle can be really difficult. And I've had friends who, and it's, I can see, you know, I have had, I've had Christian friends who really struggle with it and it's really painful for them. And I understand that. But, um, but I, my advice is just really to just look at the bigger picture and be constantly renewed in your mind by the word of God, because the culture is bombarding you with lies day after day and, and every aspect in music and, you know, Netflix Mm, and everything else you're being bombarded by the lie of the culture. And so you need to be in the word of God to be Mm. immersed in the truth. And, and I think when you, you know, I would just say, look, just do, do two things, read the book of Hebrews and read revelation Mm. and the book of revelation and see how that affects you because those two books to me are like one of two of the most kind of jolting challenging books in terms of this, that idea of this idea that we're talking about. So, um, that's what I would do. Yeah. That's a good word. And the book is called a change of affection, a gay man's incredible story of redemption. And for people listening, you know that I'm recommending books all the time, but it's very rare that I will actually go out of my way and post on Facebook like, hey, get this book. Everybody needs to read this book. I, I've done that with this book. Please, if you listen and you know you hear all the book recommendations, I'm telling you, get this book. It will bless you. It will encourage you. It will convict you and it will inspire you. A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. Beckett, thank you so much for taking some time to talk today and I hope we get to do it again. Yeah, thank you so much, Elisa. It was fun. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can go to elisachilders.com and click the subscribe button. You can also subscribe on YouTube and iTunes. If you'd like to come alongside the ministry in a deeper way, you can check out patreon.com slash elisachilders. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.